The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strains through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Federal Ammunition, OnX Hunt, Walton's, Nutrisource Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, Grain Belt Premium Beer, North Dakota Tourism and by the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association. Today, we're road tripping through bird country with Mike Yashko. Mike is on a five-state bird hunting bender with his Bacardi Spaniels. We'll get a glimpse into his journey and find out what he's seeing in the field and what he's learned along the way. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I am Travis Frank. I'll be your host today. Brandon Morton, as always, is our producer extraordinaire. Brandon, um, how was your commute this morning through the ice storm? There was no commute this morning so far. I won't be commuting until this afternoon, so I'm well, lucky there. by then it should have melted a little bit. The roads should be fine. But I drove across glare ice again. Ugh. Not my first time. Our guest today, is, I'm guessing, has driven across quite a bit of glare ice. Winter is here and it sucks. I'm yes, not yes, ready it, for it. I know walking the dog this morning was maybe one of the hardest things to do, just seeing all that snow on the ground. Uh, I love winter. I'm not saying that I don't want winter to be here. It's just that this is the best time of the year. I wait all year for this exact 30 day window, basically 45 days, basically October 1st through middle of November is the best time of the year. Everything is happening in the outdoor world, and I want to do every single thing possible. Whether you are a waterfall hunter, the migration is happening. If you're a deer hunter, millions of Americans are deer hunters. Right now, the bucks are in rut. As we record this, it is Halloween day. Halloween is here, and I just did an interview with the DNR biologist for the state of Minnesota a couple of days ago, and I, and I was wondering, like, what is the peak of the activity for bucks uh, with the rut? In our area, he said it's Halloween day. There'll be more bucks on their feet today than perhaps any other day of the year. And he says that because the testosterone has peaked. The bucks are ready. They know the rut is, they know the does are going to go into heat any day here. Uh, typically, the does go into heat in Minnesota November 4th through the 8th. And he, he gives us those numbers and the statistics based on when the fawns drop every spring. You can go back. It is not anything to do with the temperature that dictates when the does go into heat. It is daylight hours. Did you know that, Brandon? No, I did not. I definitely did not know that. <laughs> well, now you know. Now you Thanks. know. Yeah. And our upland seasons are pretty much all up and rolling. Iowa opened up this past weekend to a blizzard. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just it just feels a little too early to have winter set in. Last week I was in North Dakota and I had a hen run under my legs in between my feet. She couldn't fly yet. She was too small. 
And I wonder about that hen because of 14 inches of snow, I believe, is the total in that particular area that we hunted, has fallen since then. And I just think that poor little hen may not make it. But the strong, the the runts always survive. So I'm hoping, I'm pulling for her. And all right, let's bring in our guest today. Why not? Mike Yashko. Mike, where are you at right now? Uh, I'm in central Montana right now, Travis. Where do you call home? Well, you were talking about the weather. It's all a matter of perspective. Uh, I'm, I live in southwest Florida. Southwest so, Florida? Southwest you, okay. Florida, which yeah. is not bird country, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, yeah. So I'm loving, I'm loving the weather. I feel sorry for you guys, but I'm loving this winter weather. Did you anticipate, did you come prepared for the cold, the wind chills, below zero wind chills and snow? Oh, absolutely. I've got the thermals. I've got uh, extra gloves. I've got a couple sets of boots in case I get wet. Uh, I'm I'm ready to go. I, t- I mentioned this on our last podcast. I was uh, partway through ripping Scott Franzen, but I did pause for a moment to uh, mention that I bring three changes of clothes every time I go hunting. Three changes, three pairs of boots, three pairs of pants, three different layered uh, shirt gloves, hats, all of it. Because the first walk of the morning can get wet. And then if I take a break, come back to the truck and I want to go on another walk, I don't want to start that one wet. So I have a change of clothes. The afternoon walk, I'm dry. And then if I get wet out there, when I drive back home, I want to be dry again. So three pairs of clothes. Do you you follow that? It sounds like, Mike, that's pretty much what you're doing. Absolutely. Better safe than sorry. I don't want to cut a hunt short because my feet get wet or or uh, you know, I step in uh, step in a small stream or something. I want to be prepared and stay out there as long as I can with my dog. So that's uh, that's the motto I live by: better safe than sorry. Yeah. So I mentioned this at the top of the show. You're in the middle of a five state bird hunting bender with your Picardy spaniels. Um, how many states? We'll we'll dig into each one to kind of give our listeners a glimpse into what you've been seeing out there and why you're doing it. But can you list off the states that you've hunted so far and what you've hunted there in each one? Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've hunted, um, a few days in Minnesota. I was in central Minnesota and then Southwest Minnesota. Um, we, we got on pheasant, uh, there. Um, we spent a couple days looking for pheasant in central, in central Minnesota. I have to say the bird population was not what I expected, but Southwest Minnesota was pretty strong. Um, so we had a good time there. We spent some time, a little bit of time in South Dakota. We got good bird reports from Northwest North Dakota. And so we kind of hightailed it out of South Dakota, plus pheasant weren't in yet because we're non-residents. So uh, we hightailed it for uh, Northwest North Dakota and unfortunately ran into some bad weather there. We we got to the grasslands up there around um, uh, the northeastern part of the state, and we weren't there half an hour before the wind started howling. We probably had sustained winds of 35 miles an hour, gusts of, uh, you know, up to 70. So uh, it's just a regular day in North Dakota. That's just just a regular regular Tuesday. Yeah. (laughs) Little, little windy for a boy from Southwest Florida, but, um, we, uh, we were in the grasslands up there. We were going to hunt sharp tail and then the rain came. Uh, so we decided just to hunker down that night. We camped there and we were going to get up the next day and hunt. Conditions were slightly better, but not great. Um, we were flushing coveys of sharp tails as we were driving out. 
and I couldn't resist it. I I, I told uh, the friend I was with, uh, Rick Plath from New Glarus, Wisconsin, uh, made a part of the trip with me. I said, I've got to put one of my dogs out and, and just try to hunt uh, a little bit. So I put my youngest male out, Gus, and um, the wind was blowing so strong. He was going on point, you know, 75 yards away. And I'd try to, I'd try to inch him up a little bit. He'd take five steps and lock up again. It just wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be a productive day. So we packed, uh, packed that up and headed for uh, Northeastern Montana, where we spent a couple of days. Uh, and I'm down in central Montana right now. So we've been on, uh, we've been on sharp tails. We've been on huns. Uh, we've been on pheasants. Uh, I'm trying to focus on, on huns this trip and sharp tails. Um, I, I find my dogs are getting some bad habits hunting a lot of pheasant and, and <laughs> they, they don't, it, do, it doesn't translate well to uh, huns and sharpies, which is really what I want to hunt. So mm. um, we're kind of focusing on that a little bit with my Picardy Spaniels, as you mentioned, I've got four of them with me. So it's not the first time they've been out here, but um, each time they come out, they learn more and more uh, about hunting on the prairie. And um, I noticed early on in our trip, you know, they're tracking pheasant, they're trailing and they're, mm -hmm. you know, obviously putting a little pressure on those birds trying to stay close. And then when I try to translate them over to huns and sharpies, they're, they're, uh, flushing the birds out. So trying to get close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's fun or challenging or frustrating, whichever, uh, descriptor you want to take, but, uh, to, to, to change into those different bird species and then trying to help your dogs work through that or not do something that you don't like, for instance, flushing birds like that. But, um, I think that's part of the real joy in, in what we're doing out here right now, this time of the year, especially where you are, where you have so, so many different species that your dogs could encounter on any given walk. Um, did I pronounce it wrong? I thought I was Picardy. It's Picardy. Spaniels? Well, there's a there, there's a little bit of a dispute uh, here in the states, but it's Picardy Spaniel, uh, and if you go to France, they're from the Picardy region of France, and that's how they pronounce it. But we've got about half of the uh, owners in the U.S. and North America will say Picardy, and and the rest say Picardy. Picardy is my preference because that's the way they say it in the native land. So um, mm -hmm. I say Picardy Spaniel. How long have you had Picardies? Uh, 2017, uh, was when I brought my oldest female over, uh, her name's Tilly and she was one of the first handful, handful of uh, Picardy Spaniels in the United States. Well, in North America, for that matter, we're up to about 250 now, but uh, I don't know if in Tilly North was, America, that's it. That's it in North America. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if Tilly was, you know, number two or number four or number six, but she was certainly one of the first ones on the ground here in North America. And uh, she's six and a half now. So in that period of time from when she came over to uh, to today, we've got the population up to about 250 dogs. Some of those were imported. Uh, there's been a number of uh, litters uh, born here in the United States. There's a couple of people doing a really nice job from a breeding standpoint up in Wisconsin and, and in Minnesota. I mentioned my my friend uh, Rick Plath, who, who took part of this trip with me. He's Breeding Picardy Spaniels in New Glarus, Wisconsin, with his wife Ellen uh, Bergfeld, and home of spotted um, cow beer as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I had one. I had one when I was up there visiting. Uh, the The start of this trip um, was a honeymoon for uh, for my male Theo and his female Whiskey. Uh, we bred those two dogs 
at the beginning of this trip. And so we hung around Wisconsin for a little bit and uh, headed up to Minnesota and hunted a little bit and back to pick up Theo and then headed west. So uh, there should be at least uh, eight more uh, Picardy Spaniels on the ground in December and uh, maybe up to 13. The litters generally range from about eight to 13. So so are your any of your dogs, are you breeding any of, of yours? Well, the the males, my males are contributing to the okay. to the population here in the U.S. I'm not breeding the females because I'm not really in a position right now to you know to raise a litter. I'm still working full time. I've got a day job, and uh, it's just not uh, it's not the right time for me to breed the females. And they'll probably age out, frankly. So if I want to do that, that's going to be with uh, my next couple of dogs. But both of my boys, Theo and Gus have sired a litter already. And uh, of course, as I just mentioned, Gus is, you know, on his second now. I'm well, I'm, I'm curious about this breed, why you'd go through so much work to bring them over here into the U.S. And instead of just saying, you know, we'll take a, we'll take a dog that's already over here. What is it about them that intrigues you so much or that made you want to uh, bring them over here? Well, I, I could do, you know, probably eight hours on Picardy Spaniels, but I'll, I'll give you the condensed version. They, first of all, they're unique uh, and they're rare, as I just described. And so that was attractive to me. I didn't want to have, you know, the same kind of dog that everybody else had. And so when I looked around, I had a couple of things in mind. And I frankly thought it was a Christmas wish list. And I, I, I didn't think I was going to get all of them, but I thought, you know, Let's lay it out there and see if I can match that up with a breed. And uh, what I wanted was um, I wanted a, a strong hunting dog, uh, you know, a muscular build, well-built, well-put-together dog with a lot of drive. And here's where the wish, wish list part of it came in. I, I also wanted a dog that was going to be easy to handle uh, and good around the house. And that's probably every, you know, waterfowl and upland hunters wish list. And, mm -hmm. and um, I'm pretty familiar with the breeds. And usually you get you can get 90% of that, but you can't get it all. And um, based upon my research, I convinced myself that I could have it all with the Picardy Spaniel. And that's exactly what they are. They're just, um, you, well, we start in the home. My dogs uh, all live in the house with me. I've got kennels in my garage and they're, you know, they're free to, uh, to be in the house with me. And um, when they're, they have an off switch and when they're in the house, that, that switch is off and, um, you could have a show golden retriever sitting on your, you know, on the dog bed in the corner for all, you know, I mean, they are just as pleasant in the house as can be, but you take them out in the field and the switch turns on and that drive kicks in and they're just hunting machines. And it's just a, and for what I was looking for in a dog, it's just a perfect match. And the fact that they were you know, gorgeous to look at and, um, and rare in the, in North America was sort of the crowning uh, blow for me. So I imported four of them. Uh, actually they're French dogs, but I imported them from a breeder, uh, in England, a guy named A.D. Maurice, who's, who's doing an excellent job with these dogs. And, um, he sent, I don't know, probably a dozen or more dogs to the U S to get the breeding stock started, but they're just, they're just excellent companions in the home and tremendous hunters in the field. Can you explain how they hunt? What's their hunting style? Are they do they range? Are they close? Do they flush? Do they point? Do they retrieve? Tell me everything about them. Well, they're versatile dogs. So so they they do it all. They'll they'll uh, point uh, and retrieve. Uh, they're excellent water dogs. I don't do a lot of waterfowl hunting myself, but 
the Picardy region of France, which is up near Ardennes and sort of that northeastern part of France, um, has a lot of marshes, has a lot of water, and you know that's that's where they came from. This this breed sort of started to distill in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I think the early 1900s was the first time that they recognized the Picardy Spaniel as a breed separate and apart from you know what they used to just call the French Spaniel. And they've got, um, you know, back then they bred in some Gordon Setter, they bred in some English Setter. Um, and so for my style of hunting, these dogs are perfect. They, they, you know, the usual pace for them is sort of a, you know, like a medium gallop. Um, they typically range just beyond, uh, you know, gun range, uh, which is where I want my dogs to be. I don't want them 800 yards away. Um, it's kind of a flowing gallop. It's a, it's a, they're really beautiful in the field. They're just the, the movement, the, the hunting technique, uh, they'll pattern if you want them to do that. Uh, my dogs are to the point now where they, you know, they're pretty efficient and they're hunting and they don't waste a lot of time hunting ground where they don't think they're going to find birds, which is, which is fine with me. I don't need that windshield wiper, you know, uh, uh, pattering out in front of me. I want them to go find birds and they do that. So um, that's the style. It's kind of a nice, I, I like a nice relaxed uh, walk when I go out and these dogs deliver, you know, everything I want in that regard. So, And they, they'll hold point. Do you um, release them to flush the bird when you get there or do you flush the bird? No, I, I, well, the goal is for me to flush the bird. That doesn't always mm -hmm. happen. Sometimes the bird flushes itself. Uh, they, they are at the point now, the youngest ones are four. Uh, my two youngest, Gus and Flirt, uh, are brother and sister. And they're, they're to the point now where they also will be very staunch. The other, the other two, Theo and Tilly are older and they're, they're, uh, very staunch. But they'll hold that, and I, I don't like them uh, to flush. I go in and flush myself. Picardies have a lot of point. It develops early on. Um, it's it's not something you need to work at a lot. In fact, all of all the skill sets. The retrieve is also sort of a natural retrieve. They're a very soft mouthed uh, breed. Um, uh, you know, they have they have decent tracking ability. I would say, at least for my dogs, that's probably you know number three in their in their toolkit. They're 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 better at the at retrieving and pointing, but they do track. Theo's a tracking machine. He'll run a rooster down. You know, he'll, he'll chase it all across North America <laughs> to pin it. I mean, he just has no stop in him. Um, but they so they sort of have it all. They're a versatile dog, and that's hmm. that's what I like about them. And as I said, they're they're natural born water workers. But well, I don't they're, they're beautiful dogs. I'm yeah. looking at some photos of them right now online, and I mean, just absolutely stunning dogs. Yeah. It, uh, they're looks like they're a little bit smaller than an English Setter, uh, a little bit larger than most of the other Spaniels cousins, um, according to Wikipedia here too. Um, gosh, I mean, it that sounds exactly what I would want in a dog too. I mean, my dog pretty much does what you're saying except she's a you know she likes to get out and and run fast and, and she yeah. likes to cover a lot of ground so she will go four or five six hundred yards when i let her do that um but she's doing all the same things too she'll hold the point she's got a soft mouth she brings them back and just very driven the prey drive is is insane um, but she's also 
I'll bring her waterfall hunting and she'll be out there retrieving all the birds, even though she doesn't have the, the, the coat, you know, now it'd be cold for her out there. Um, right. but it looks like the Picardies, they, they can handle some of that cold elements and do you water hunt them late in the season too? Um, the, yeah, they, they, uh, I put a picture up on Instagram the other day, uh, on, on bird dog of the day, uh, with my youngest female flirt on my tailgate with just snowballs all over her. Um, <laughs> but she, she dug out a couple of sharp tail that were buried in the snow. It took her a while to figure out where those birds were, but she dug them out of the snow and she looks like the abominable snowman on the, on the tailgate of my truck. But she she was as happy as could be and and just worked as, you know, as hard as if it were uh, if as if it were September. And uh, but she was, you know, her coat kept warm. It, it also accumulated a lot of ice, but but it kept her sure. warm and sure. she got wet a couple of times, too. We hunted a, a little draw that had some, uh, you know, frozen water, or slightly frozen water in the bottom of it that she broke through a couple of times, you know, up to her up to her ankles and. But she just kept going. So they're, you know, they're hard, a pretty hardy dog, and their coat, I think, prepares them pretty well for that kind of late season, uh, late season hunting. How how are they different than other spaniel breeds? Well, I think it's the, you know, I'm I'm a champion of my dogs. I I love all dogs, and I love you know all of the spaniel breeds. But I think what it is for me is they're they're, a, I think a little. Sh- a more muscular, a little more well-built, a little sturdier dog, if that makes sense. Um, the, uh, you know, they range, of course, like any other breed. There's, there's some females that are on the smaller, slighter side. Uh, there's some males that if you looked at them, you'd be convinced you were looking at a Gordon setter, um, uh, because, you know, those genes were bred into them at one point in time. But, um, they're, I, I think just a sturdier dog. It's a, it's, that's probably the best word I can think of when I compare them to other uh, spaniels. And I think a part of, uh, of it is to the, the versatile, uh, you know, the fact that they do everything, they've got everything in their toolkit, uh, the pointing and the retrieving, um, the waterfowl work, uh, I think sets them apart from some of, some of those other breeds. You know, you look at a, like a blanket or something who's more specialized, I think, than, or a cocker who's a flushing dog. I mean, these guys are versatile dogs and, and, um, you can put them on the ground pretty much in any, situation and they're going to perform well when they go on point do they put their tails straight out or does it come up no it's they're not they're not a 12 o'clock tail their 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 natural point is fairly relaxed um you know they're obviously on point and they're very staunch uh head is very still their tail is generally you know straight back um it's funny my you know, they all have their own personalities. My boy, Gus, uh, I, I like to say he thinks with his tail. So when he's on a bird, his tail will be going in a circle like a helicopter. Yeah. And the closer, he gets, the closer he gets to the bird, the more his tail slows down until eventually when he goes on point, the tail stops and locks up. So that's how I can always tell where, where he is in relation to the bird because he's, I think he's signaling me with that tail, but um, it's not, you wouldn't buy this breed because you like that, you know, that classic 12 o'clock tail on a dog. They don't, they don't point that way. Sure. But I, gosh, I'm just, I keep scrolling through these photos. What a beautiful dog. I like the size. Um, you know, my, my setter, uh, pointer, she's about 39 pounds. Um, and it looks to me that these spaniels are kind of right in that 
I mean, would you guess 36, 37 pound range? Uh, I think they're probably a little bigger. They're probably 10. I, the, the smaller females, um, as well, smaller males for that matter would probably be in the, in the high forties to low fifties okay. range. That would be a small, uh, Picardy Spaniel. Some of the larger males will get my, my Gus is 72 pounds, uh, in the off season when he's hunting, he's down around 65, but he's kind of on the, that would be the upper end of the breed standard. And the lower end of the breed standard would be down around, you know, females down around 50. Um, but they are a beautiful dog. You know, they've got that gray mottling with the, with the brown patches and they've got the, the tan markings on their, you know, typically they'll have tan markings on their muzzle, uh, on their forelimbs and on their head. It's just, it's a beautiful dog. And, uh, no that's a, kidding. Wow. that's a big part of it. You know what the I, one, the one bird that I don't hunt a lot, I've hunted some rough grouse in Georgia. Um, and if you know anything about rough grouse hunting in Georgia, you know that emphasis is on hunt uh, because there aren't a lot of birds there that forestry uh, management really has has taken the birds out of North Georgia. But but if you hunt rough grouse, uh, which I don't do a lot of, I think these dogs would be great for that, too. They're just, you know, the way they hunt, uh, they're sort of uh, they get in that close cover and they get very methodical. Um, they're very tough, you know, for that kind of uh, that kind of environment. So I, I think they've got all the tools. I think you can take them out on a prairie and have a great hunt. You can take them in the Northwoods and have a great hunt. You can put them on quail down south. In fact, uh, my son who works for Quail Forever hunts uh, woodcock and quail a lot, obviously, down in Alabama and, and Georgia and Louisiana, that area. And um, he wants to take uh, my dog, Theo, down there this winter just to hunt woodcock because he's enamored of the way that, that he hunts in, those, in that terrain. Now is a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Walton's.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. A toast to the hunters from your friends at Grain Belt. May the mornings be clear and the fresh air be crisp. May you find solace in the silence. May the stillness settle your soul. May your long shots stay true. May your heart roam free. May you find what you seek in the fields you stock. May your call to the wild be answered. And at the end of the day, may you share in the thrill of the hunt with your friends. So here's to the eight pointers and the 12 ounces. Here's to you and to your thirst for adventure. Bring Grain Belt to the outdoors with our limited edition premium hunting season pack. This season, enter to win a hunting trip for two to Brown's Hunting Lodge, wherever you can find premium 12 and 24 pack cans. For more information, visit our website at grainbelt.com forward slash hunting dash trip. A healthy dog is a happy dog, and a dog's optimal health ultimately starts with an optimal diet. That's why I trust Nutrisource Performance Dog Food to keep Daisy healthy and running to her full potential. Nutrisource now has a full circle feeding plan that can help your dog achieve their full potential too. The full circle feeding plan revolves around their entire lineup of Nutrisource dog foods that contain their good for life system. The Nutrisource good for life system is packed with probiotics, 
prebiotics and proprietary minerals that work together to support your dog's heart health and gut health. By combining this system in all of their dry foods and wet foods, you can rotate carbs and proteins like chicken, beef, fish, and lamb to meet and exceed your dog's needs and accelerate their natural desire to eat. Plus, their toppers like kombucha add even more health benefits for our dogs. Learn more about Nutrisource dog foods and the benefits of their full-circle feeding plans at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. I'm fascinated by this breed right now. I mean, just the look of them, just the way you describe them, it's exactly what I want in a dog. We get, I get a lot of people that say, what kind of dog should I get? I'm always like, I mean, I can't answer that for you. Where do you hunt? What do you like to hunt for? Um, You know, but there's this, there's this thing right now in America where a lot of bird hunters, they want a dog that does it all, the versatile dog, you know, and I, I just envision this being just a perfect all around dog, especially with the temperament you're talking to be in the home where most people have their dogs today. Um, But the drive on them is high, huh? The the prey drive? High prey drive. High prey drive. Which is what um, I want. I mean, if you ask a lot of the top dog trainers in in the country or North America or even the world, they would take a dog that doesn't have the affection and love in the home, but they want the prey drive. They want a dog that doesn't care about anything but that bird. And right. that's what they're really after. So I'm, I'm well, intrigued you- by this. If you want it all, Travis, you have, you're going to have to get yourself a Picardy Spaniel. And I know where there's going to be a litter in December. So, well, maybe, I mean, maybe I'm going to send a picture to my wife. I don't know. I, I'm partial to this missile that I have curled up next to me right now on the cushion. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm intrigued by this, Mike. I, I kind of want to see him in the field sometime. I, so let's get to your journey here and sure, see if I can sure. meet up with you somewhere <laughs> along the way to, <laughs> sure, to see what they look sure. like. So. So you're you're in Southwest Florida, and I'm. A, are you in like a, what part of Florida do you live in? Are you in one of those uh, retirement communities down there that all the Minnesota snowbirds go visit in the winter? Well, sort of. Uh, I, I'm not a part of those retirement communities, but yeah, I, I live in Naples, Florida, which is uh, as far in down in Southwest Florida as you can get uh, without being in the Everglades. The next the when next I stop think of Florida. retirement communities in Florida, I, the first town that comes to mind is Naples. So yep. you are completely in, in the, in that world. I know a lot of people that winter down there, snowbird down there. Where are you from originally? Is that home? Uh, no, I'm, I'm originally from Ohio. So I'm a, I'm a Midwestern boy. And, um, you know, that's sort of how I ended up in Southwest Florida, as you alluded to, there's, there's sort of a pipeline. I think it's a historical thing. When they built the interstates, you know, I-75 came down the west coast of Florida from the Midwest and 95 came down the east coast of Florida from uh, from the east coast. And so Florida was sort of populated by retirees and, and other folks searching for sunshine, you know, based upon the roads that they took south. So Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Iowa, you know, Ohio, Michigan. They're all down there, packed in on the on the west coast. And um, my in laws had a place down there thirty or so years ago, and that's how we started to visit. We kind of fell in love with it, and twenty five years or so ago, we decided we're we're gonna get out of the snow and the cold winters and the cloudy gray skies in Ohio and and head to Southwest Florida. So we did, and um, you know now I'm working my way my way back north with these hobbies that I have with upland bird hunting and these dogs, but. Uh, mm-hmm. 
that's that's how we ended up there. But you're exactly right. Uh, a bunch of uh, you know uh, kind, friendly, good-hearted Midwesterners down there on the west coast of Florida. Love it. What do they think when they see a four pack of Pickardies come walking in front of you every morning when you go by? Well, they're uh, they're not used to seeing uh, bird dogs in general, but they're they're particularly shocked when they see four uh, Pickardy Spaniels roll out of the back of my Ford F one fifty. I I searched long and hard for a vehicle to get these dogs in. I finally had to had to get a uh, an F one fifty with a six and a half foot bed and uh, put one of those cargo glides in the back. When I've got yep. my kennel strapped down in there and I pull the cargo glide out so that I can reach everybody and start unloading those dogs. And yeah, people's eyes get wide when they see that. <laughs> uh, and I've noticed on some of your uh, photos and videos here that it's got the bird dog of the day uh, wrap on your truck right now. How did you get hooked up with those guys? Well, like anything in life, it's a, you know, it's an interesting story. Um, you know, this, this, upland hunting community, this bird dog community uh, that we're in, um, you know, you're doing what you're doing, I'm doing what I'm doing, is kind of a, in my opinion, and I'm a little biased, obviously, but it's a, it's a unique uh, community. And it's, you know, obviously widely dispersed, but there's a connection between people, even with people that you haven't met yet. You're sharing that same uh, passion for the outdoors and the uplands or the, you know, or the uh, waterfowl areas or what we you know, whatever it is that you happen to hunt, but that shared passion is being outdoors. You know, most of the people are out there for, you know, the camaraderie with the fellow hunters and the dogs. Most of the people I talk to, the bird shooting is not unimportant, but it's not the highest priority on their list. And so just within that close net community, close knit community, I got introduced to, um, to Seth Patterson and the Hyatt Voy. Um, I don't know, a couple of years ago, one of my uh, friends that I hunt with in Montana, Fairmount, Adam Thomas, met them at Pheasant Fest, ironically, um, introduced me to them later on. And they had this uh, Instagram page, uh, Bird Dog of the Day, and I just became enamored with it. And I, I, I'm not a huge social media guy, but I loved the fact that I could connect with all of these people who had these similar interests. And so, uh, you know, a little while ago, we decided to, you know, make it a, a venture where we, you know, we tried to have a community of people that we could connect with that shared common passions. And then, you know, of course, we post photos every day, as the name implies, bird dog of the day. Um, and we get, you know, th a thousand photos a day to select from. That's how... Uh, Isn't that wild? That's so yeah, cool. It's, People love their dogs. I mean, that's what it boils down to. And they want to share that with people and they want to talk about that with other people. And so, you know, we, we threw in together and, um, you know, we're making this a, a community that, that people can join and be proud of. And, you know, we have on, on our uh, website, some you know, products and whatnot that, you know, we want to take into the field that we think other people might be interested in taking into the field. And, and so there's that part of it, but there's also just the huge community part of it. It's a huge connection. I've, you know, on this trip, I'll, I'll just, if you let me digress here for a second, I've got yeah, go for it. some, just some incredible stories about this community that we're building. So uh, I'm up in Northeast Montana, six o'clock in the morning. I go into a quick stop up there. I think it was called a come and go. Maybe that's the brand name. Six o'clock in the morning in this little town of, you know, couldn't have been a hundred people. And I get my coffee in my thermos and I walk out and there's a woman kneeling in front of my truck with her Vizsla. 
and her <laughs> husband husband has his iPhone in his hand taking a snapshot <laughs> of her in front of my truck. And she's on she's on Instagram as Vada Vizla. And so she takes this picture and she posts it on Instagram and she says something like, When you run into the bird dog of the day truck out in Montana, and then she puts in all capital letters, Starstruck. So um you know, people really feel a part of this community. And of course, I walked up to them, you know, as they were, as she was getting up, they were kind of looked at me kind of sheepishly. Uh, and we had a 20 minute conversation, just sharing stories about, you know, where they were from. Turns out they're from a, a town in eastern Ohio that's about an hour from where I grew up. So there we are in northeastern Montana in a town of 200 people that has a quick stop. And, and I don't even think it had a grocery store. And um, and we're connecting through bird dog of the day because she sees my truck and, you know, makes that connection. And, the, you know, wonderful people. We had a very nice conversation. I wish I could have stayed there for an hour and and talked to them. But, you know, they wanted to get in the field. We wanted to get in the field. But, mm-hmm. you know, who would have thought that um, when I you know, when I started this trip, I was hoping to make those kinds of connections. But you never know. Um, it's cool to one, see that because it's one thing on social media, but it's another when you're actually out and about and you run into people like that and then you can have those conversations in person i mean i can't even tell you how many selfies i've taken in the field with people this year or in a restaurant or at a gas station when we're on the road it's wild to me it blows my mind i love it every single time i'm always like tell me your stories because they obviously hear a lot of mine when they listen to this but we're out there they're out there too and it's so cool to connect like that yeah. How, how do you, I mean, how do you feel about that part of it? You know, people ask all the time, why do you hunt? And and everybody's got all these reasons and, you know, they talk about dogs and birds and stuff, but I think those connections are just some of the, the coolest stuff that happens when you're out there. I assume you have the same sort of reaction when, when you're out in the field and you connect with people like that. Oh, totally. Absolutely. I mean, they, they'll tell you stories and, and like we're talking right now, and somebody's going to be listening to this and I'm going to run into them in South Dakota next week or two weeks or something like that. And they're going to be like, Hey, I was listening to this one. And I actually know this guy because of this. And like everyone connects somehow, some way. And these interviews that we're doing like this, um, will definitely resonate with somebody or somebody's going to call you and say, Hey, I, I was listening to you on the flush podcast and your dogs sound amazing. I want to know about this litter that's coming in December and who knows where this is going to go. I don't know, but in five years you might be hunting with them and it's somehow all connected because, you know, we have these conversations today that we didn't used to have 10 years ago. Well, you, you know, that's part of the reason that I put the the wrap on the truck, um, you know, was, was in the hopes that people would connect that way, you know, that they would approach me when I was out, that we could have these conversations. This is the great thing about social media, right? We're ha- we're talking about the same kinds of things that hunters have talked about for ages. The difference is in today's world, you know, 30 years ago, it was the, you know, you and your three buddies or whoever happened to be on that hunt with you, you'd go out and you would hunt and you'd come back to wherever you were staying and you'd, you'd, you'd have a, a cold beer or you're sit around over dinner and rehash the day, right? Tell your stories. Did you see my dog do that? I saw you do that one at great, you know, you'd kid each other about missing that gimme shot. And now we can do that with a hundred thousand people because they're all connected in this way. And people, 
you know, like the story that I just related to you. They just they come up to you and we share this stuff when I, you know, I would have never connected with those folks, you know, 20 years ago before social media. So, you know, there's good things and bad things, but that's one of the most positive, right. I think, is it allows us all to connect. So, well, I mean, um, here's an example of something that happened to me the other day, social media that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago when we were hunting because we would have had uh, disposable cameras, <laughs> you know, the ones that you'd have to take in and they would, uh, you know, you get like 25 clicks on that thing. Right, I'm in right. I'm in North Dakota and I had just shot the third rooster of the day. My third, my limit now is in hand. My dog brings it back and I hold this bird up and I'm just sitting there for a minute and admiring this prize, you know. And the cool part was the my the snow goose the snow geese were migrating right over the top of me. There was we were in the middle of a couple of feeds and each feed had between like six and 10,000 birds in it. And so I'm standing there and I hold this rooster in my hand and I take my phone out and I just do a little video because the sound was deafening from the snow geese coming overhead. And I hold it up because I wanted to show my kids when I got home, this bird in hand. And then I pan the camera up to see all the snow geese and you can hear them in the video. And I, as I look up, I hear this voice behind me say something and I turn as this little rooster without a tail comes flying by and just within, if I would have stuck my hand up, I would have hit it. It was like within three feet of my head and it buzzes by at a million miles an hour. And like I turned my phone with my body to see this thing come buzzing by. Right. And there it goes and it's flying by. And then I was like, I showed a couple of people like, that's awesome. I go, it reminds yeah. me of uh, Top Gun when, when they buzz the tower. So I put this thing on my Instagram page and I, and I said, we're, whatever the line is from uh, Top Gun, you know, when they say, um, you know, he's like, Tower, this is Ghost Rider requesting a flyby. Negative Ghost Rider. The pattern is full, you know, and then I put in some Top Gun music. Anyway, this thing goes, I don't know. 118,000 people watched the, the video right. of that rooster flying over my head. Right. And, you know, 20 years ago, nobody would ever have seen that. And if I told them a rooster almost took my head off, they'd be like, yeah, whatever. You know, but like, what a weird day and age that we're in right now when you can capture all of this stuff and share it with people. And, you know, some people love it. Some people hate the social media world that we're in. There's good and bad, as you mentioned. I mean, I, I'm imagining you're seeing the good and the bad on this journey that you're on right now, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's funny that you 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 mentioned that. Yeah, you and and whoever was in your hunting party that day would have been the only people that possibly could have seen that. Now you've had an opportunity to share that. So mm -hmm. uh, that's I think I think that's tremendous. Um, you know, the downside is obviously, and I have to remind myself of this all the time: is you got to live in the moment. You know, sometimes it's better just to watch your dogs work than to try to film them. It's better to, you know, mm -hmm. shoot the bird than than uh, than try to film somebody else shooting the bird. You know, you you got to keep your camera in your pocket or your phone in your pocket uh, enough. But there are those moments, and when you get them, you're really glad that you capture them. Um, yeah. And I've done I've done a fair amount of that. You know, in the field, I, I've tried to strike a balance. Um, you know, we have a customer with Bird Dog of the Day who contacted us from. British Columbia. 
because he was following my travels on our Instagram page, uh, Bird Dog of the Day. And he said, I'm going to be where I think Mike's going to be on Sunday. This was just two days ago. He said, I'd like to hook up with him and hunt. And I said, fine. And so we went out and hunted and um, it was a lot of fun. And we've got some great pictures of him with a, you know, with a Sharpie that he shot. And uh, he was out hunting Monday again. I didn't get a chance to hunt with him, but he got two more Sharpies and he sent me a picture of it this morning and said, hey, that tumbler you gave me brought me good luck. Look at these Sharpies. So, you know, I've got a connection with a guy now from British Columbia that I never would have had in a million years, um, you know, before social media. So to me, that's the positive. I think it far outweighs um, the negative. You know, I posted, as as I said earlier, I posted a picture of my dog flirt with two Sharpies on my tailgate uh, a week or so ago, which has been a very popular post. And, you know, and I was able to share that with people. And I'm sure there's a few in the crowd that, that you know, would be irritated by something like that. But what I like about it, when I look at, like, if I'll uh, look at a, something that you post or somebody else posts on social media, and I think most of the hunters are this way, I can feel, I'm not saying the exact emotion, but I can sort of get in inside that picture myself because, uh, you know, I pick up on all of the elements that are in there. You know, you're holding that bird, the snow geese are flying over your head. I mean, I can almost, I, I feel that in my chest. I can put myself out in the field and I'm, I'm experiencing that hunt with you in a, in a, in a, you know, uh, kind of an odd kind of a way, but I'm there and I can get there based on the social media in a way that I can't, if we're just sitting around having a beer and you're telling me about that, not that that's, mm -hmm. uh, that, that you can't do it that way. But I think just the, the fact that you can get a picture and get it sort of in real time like that, I think is a, is a big benefit. You know, one of the things that, and I, I know you feel this way, I feel this way. Most people do. We've got to get more hunters. We've got to get more people involved um, yeah. in, in this community. And I just think social media is a good way to do that. It has a couple well, of negatives. It's, it's proving to be a thing that has driven people into the field. I think we can agree that social media, and that's where there's some negative sides. People will argue now, are, are there too many hunters out in these areas? You know, we, we know based on reports, biologists are out in the field in the summer. Hey, bird numbers here are up 18%, 60%, 200%, whatever. You know, so now all these this information is shared and now people are heading that way. Do we have more hunters or are they just concentrating in those areas that the reports are really strong? That's kind of where I'm wondering, you know, because people blame this show, our our content, other podcasts out there. You guys are ruining it. I've got to my spot. There's too many hunters out there. OK, um, is it because the information is just so readily available or is it? something else. I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, the information is being shared. People are consuming it. They're making their decisions based on that. Um, but are there more of us? I, I, that I don't know. Yeah. My, my information's all anecdotal. I feel like there are, uh, I feel like there are, you know, a lot more n new hunters getting involved, whether they're, you know, because of love of the dogs or camaraderie or what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, you know, completely anecdotal. I get the other point, but, you know, at some point, then you got to blame the North Dakota Bureau of Tourism and you've got to blame the, you know, Aberdeen, South Dakota for calling themselves the, you know, uh, pheasant capital of the world. I mean, it's, it, right. you know, it's, 
if you are a hunter um, and you get that information, you're going to find some spots. And I think some of that is just, um, I understand it. I mean, if, if I were a local and I had my spots, I probably would be upset when, you know, those out of town license plates rolls in, but uh, you know, the restaurant owner and the guy who owns the gas station and it, it's a, it's a big complicated picture. I can see both sides of it, but I do too. Um, I totally I, get I it. it. Yep. Yeah. I think it's a net positive. I, I think the big picture though, and hopefully people agree or can see it too. The big picture is it's a good thing. Um, it might take a little time, but more hunters mean more conservation, more habitat, more opportunities in the long run. And I think we're looking at, you know, the start of the season for a lot of states, pheasants, we'll, we'll just say pheasant hunting, just opened up. I mean, it feels like winter, but l- literally Iowa's only been open for four days, you know, right. and South Dakota for 11 or whatever it is, depending on if you're a resident or non-resident. So right. the season has just started and typically the first two weeks of the season are when you're going to have the majority of people out there. As the season goes along, I think these opportunities are going to open up and the complaints are going to go down a little bit. Yes, there will still be people out there hunting and that's good. But I think, you know, when they're complaining about opening day, they've been complaining about opening day forever. We're just seeing the complaints on social media now because opening day is always the busiest day of the season. So right. your expectation shouldn't be to show up to the parking lot at 8:47 and get out and hunt at 9 and opener. Like that's that's always I mean even when I started hunting as a kid I knew that if I wanted a good spot on opening morning I better get there early. And that's the right. same for waterfall hunting. Nothing has changed. We just see all of the complaints so easily right now. In 2 weeks Deer season's open. People are going to be deer hunting wherever they're at. And it spreads the hunters out a little bit. And then you've got hunting for upland birds that you might have a WMA to yourself for the next month, you know, depending on which part of the, which state you're in and which part of the state you're in, the further you are from a big city, the less likely it is to have somebody hunting on it. Um, So I think these complaints are going to go down a little bit as the season wears on. The hardcore hunters are going to have more opportunities. And here's the deal, Mike, you're seeing this. I know you are. Crop harvest is, you know, maybe 50%, maybe not even that much, depending on corn. Um, A lot of standing corn, a lot of standing beans out there. A lot of those places have a lot of birds. And as those crops come out, more birds are going to filter into these publicly accessible places, giving the hunters that are willing to go out there uh, in the late season as it wanes, wanes on more opportunities. So I just hope the complaints go down and people are able to say, Hey, more hunters is a good thing. We just have to now educate everybody, um, be responsible. Those of us that have been doing it for a long time need to accept our role and say, Hey, I can take the high road. I can help somebody and say, Hey, the common courtesy thing here is not to show up five minutes before legal shooting and walk in front of somebody who's been waiting, you know, and just talk through it and take the high road, you know, but all right, enough of my ramble there. If you're looking for an awesome bird hunting adventure, then now is a great time to head to the state of North Dakota. Why? Well, this year, the state of North Dakota has reported that pheasant counts are up 61% from last year. The sharp-tailed grouse numbers are up 
116%. And get this, the Hungarian partridge numbers have tied an all-time high that comes in at 200% above last year. I've already hunted in North Dakota this season, and I've seen these bird numbers for myself. Water levels are also up, which means the total number of wetlands are up. 76% above the long-term average. The state's breeding duck index was the 23rd highest on record this year. 39% above the long-term average at 3.4 million. All of these numbers mean that there are more ducks, more geese, pheasants, sharpies, and Hungarian partridge on the landscape. In North Dakota, you can experience an epic waterfowl hunter in the peak of the fall migration and have the best upland hunt of your life all in the same day. I know this because I've done it myself. Start planning your world-class hunt in North Dakota at hellond.com. If you're an active outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Well, our friends at Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for all of your hauling needs, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma Trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road, just like you'd see if you're using your own Maps, Apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public. The landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. What have you seen from your your journey through these different states? Let's start with Minnesota because when you showed me your list, I got you emailed me a list of where you were going a couple weeks ago. Right. And I'm like, why? <laughs> if I'm starting in Minnesota, it's not where I'm probably going to start for pheasants, but you chose to start in central part of the state in an area that's not too far from where I live but not where I would have started. What, what made you pick that place? Well, uh, it wasn't for the birds. Let's put it that way. Uh, and, and that proved, that proved out. Um, we started there because there's a, a, a Picardy Spaniel there, a puppy about 10 months old from okay. a, a litter that was put on the ground, you know, obviously last year. And we wanted to see that dog hunt. Uh, we'd heard good things about it. Um, my friend Rick Plath, as I mentioned, from Cornerstone Kennels, uh, that dog came out of his kennel, uh, you know, 10 months ago. Uh, he thought it was going to be a good hunting dog, and we wanted to see that dog hunt. And so we made a special trip there. 
We walked behind that dog for a couple days. It's owned by um, Natalie and Janae Lyon, who live up in Waverly or in, in the Waverly area. And so that's the reason. Uh, we didn't go there for the birds. We went there to watch, you know, one of the cool. dogs in this this line of dogs that we're putting out in, in the United States. Uh, watch that dog hunt. And it hunted great. At 10 months old, um, off the hook, in my opinion, that's going to be a great, great hunting dog. So we spent a couple of days, spent a couple of days there. Didn't see a lot of birds, um, didn't bag a lot of birds, but uh, we we finished there and then headed for uh, southwest, uh, southwestern Minnesota, uh, down near, I think uh, was, the town was, uh, I forget the name hold, of the town. Hold on, hold on, hold on, yeah. hold on. Don't name the town so I don't get hit. Yeah, there you go. I, I don't want to give. I don't want to have people to give you a bunch of grief. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we hunted down there. Where it was much more productive. Um, a fair amount of pheasants down there. I was surprised. I hadn't looked at any forecast or anything, but um, uh, but we did pretty well down there. And but that you know we started in Minnesota because we wanted to see a dog hunt. I mean that's mm-hmm. the that's the long and the short of it. Gotcha. Then then. Uh, bird numbers exceeded your expectations then? Yeah, I think, I think in Southwest Minnesota it did. Yeah. Um, I wasn't expecting a lot and, uh, and we got into some, so that was, that was positive. Did you see a lot of hunters? No, no. And that was one of the things when you were talking about, um, you know, the, 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 uh, competition and out of state plates and people showing up early and all that stuff. We, I, we probably saw, in two days, one or two other trucks on the road. Saw nobody in the field. Interesting. Midweek then? Um, yeah, I think it was probably Tuesday, Wednesday. So yep. yeah. Yeah. One the week. Yeah, I mean, that's if if you want to avoid the crowds, you hunt Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I mean, if you can do it, if you can get away from work, do it because you'll have the pick of the spots. I mean, it's just yep. rare to see somebody else out there pheasant hunting. Yeah. A Saturday morning, very common. Wednesday yep. morning. Not very common. Okay, so you go to North Dakota, and you you're after Huns and Sharptails. Is there a reason why? Um, well, it's what I alluded to earlier. It's you know I've I've hunted my dogs for the last couple of years, and you know we've we've hunted a lot of pheasants, and I just noticed that um, that that what's making them successful hunting pheasants is not translating well to uh, sharp tails and to huns, particularly sharp tails, but also to huns. And, uh, and the other part of it is what I like about uh, hunting is um, sort of the planning, the strategy, you know, looking at a piece of ground, trying to figure out where I think the birds are going to be, how we're going to hunt it, setting all that up, you know, ahead of time. And at least for me, it's much more challenging to do that with huns and sharptails than it is with pheasant. And so I've just been targeting those because I, you know, I want to noodle on it a little bit more and develop that strategy and just see if the plan that I got out of the truck with, uh, you know, ends up being successful or not. So that's, yeah. I mean, it, it, I look at this time of the season, it's different than September. Those are September birds. A lot of hunters in that part of the country are after Huns and Sharpies in September and they moved to pheasants at the end of October and into November because those are really challenging birds to get close to. Did you find that they were spooky, that they wouldn't hold? Or did you find birds that ultimately did hold? And what'd you do to make that happen? Um, 
Well, I had I had a little of both. I mean, there were some places that you you couldn't get within you know two hundred yards. Uh, they were just you know wild flushing out in front of you, and there was there was really nothing that you could do. I'll be honest. When the snow came, uh, which is part of the reason I was happy to see the the snow, they started to hunker down a little bit more and and give my dogs a little you know a little more of a fair chance to get them pointed, and we had a lot more success. I guess snow's been on the ground uh, for, I don't know, the last 10 days, a week to 10 days. And we've had a lot more, uh, success since the snow hit the ground. But, you know, I'm looking at things like, you know, the time of day, whether those birds are going to be feeding or resting or whatever. I'm trying to strategize uh, about that stuff. You know, I, I tend to, maybe I overthink, but I tend to think about my position in the field relative to the dog. I like to be up, you know, on a ridge or something, I find it's easier to walk down to a point than walk up to a point. By the time you get there, you're out of breath and you can't take the shot because you just climbed a hill. To, <laughs> yeah. on point. So I'd rather go downhill to my dog on point. And I think that's given them, you know, better opportunities and myself better opportunities. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of taking all of that in and, and uh, recalibrating as we go. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, for, the experience that my dogs have with uh, with Sharptails and with Huns, I think we've been pretty successful. And the, the thing that I love about it is I can see that progress. Sometimes I can see it from a morning hunt to an afternoon hunt, but certainly over the course of a week, um, these dogs are really smart and they're learning. And um, as I mentioned, they're learning that they can't hunt these birds, Huns and Sharptails, like they hunt pheasant. Um, it doesn't work that way. And so, you know, you've, they've got to relocate, not, not track and not put too much pressure. And, um, you know, they're learning that just because a couple birds flush doesn't mean that they've all flushed, uh, you know, yeah. when you're hunting Sharpies. So they're, they're, um, they're coming along and I just love seeing that happen. I love seeing it happen in real time. It's, uh, it's an amazing process. So that's why I'm kind of concentrating on those birds. It's not, um, it's not that I'm not going to hunt pheasant. I'll do that. But I just, uh, this year I'm, I want to concentrate on, on huns and sharpies. What are you seeing right now for covey sizes on those birds? Have they, are the sharp tails really grouped up? Are you seeing hundred bird coveys getting up? I haven't seen them that big, but they're start, they're starting to, to bunch up. Um, the, uh, I, I was out Saturday and I think that I saw maybe a group of I don't know, 2025, um, was a little difficult to count when they flushed. And and then we flushed a couple more, you know, laggards after that. So probably the biggest group I've seen is, is maybe 30. Um, but I haven't seen those big, you know, sort of late season, uh, groups like you'll, you'll see later on, but they're decent size now. As you hunted your way across North Dakota and into Montana, did you see changes in the amount of birds along the way and you know how can people you know i'm not trying to don't give out like specific town names but just you know yeah yeah but just did you see a change because i would i've been telling people it the numbers are up but they're also down in places last winter was tough if you didn't have good nesting conditions or nesting habitat you didn't rebound as well as some areas did in bird country this year in the Midwest. So what have you seen? Well, I, I talked to some people up in your area and that was the report that I got that I guess you guys had a brutal winter. 
uh, in central Minnesota there. So that wasn't mm-hmm. surprising that we didn't, we didn't find birds. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't check that out ahead of time. That's just anecdotally from, from talking to some folks that we saw up there. Um, I think bird numbers were great in North Dakota. Um, they're, they're great in, um, Montana. I'm headed to South Dakota in a couple of weeks. I'm going to spend the next week or 10 days in Montana traveling around, but uh, on the way back, I'm going to, I'm going to hit South Dakota. Um, I don't know anything about pheasant because it wasn't season when we, when we rolled through there, but, um, but there are spots. I mean, even if somebody tells you this area of the country is really, really good, you're going to run into some spots that you think, you know, there's got to be birds there. That's that cover should be holding birds and you hunt it and there's not. But I think for the most part, um, you know, the, if you if you find cover that you think you're going to find birds in, typically I found birds in that in that cover. It's it's been a pretty when you hunted in South Dakota. What were you hunting for? Um, well, we we didn't we didn't actually stop and hunt in South Dakota. We were we oh. were going to go. We were going to hunt prairie chickens there. And um, we just decided to to make a beeline for northwest uh, North Dakota. And, um, and then we're going to hit South Dakota on the way back. So we, we, the email that I sent you, we've rejiggered that schedule. Ah, Um, We found we were, we were traveling, we were traveling through there as non-residents a week before pheasant opened. And we figured let's just, let's just get on with it and get, get up to the Northwest North Dakota and catch South Dakota on the way back. So that'll be a second week of November. We'll be rolling through there. Are you camping on this trip? Oh. Not, not as a, not as a default. We camped a couple of times just because we were in places where we couldn't, you know, couldn't find a convenient, uh, a motel, convenient lodging. But, uh, so I think three nights out of the trip, we've actually camped, uh, but the rest of the time has been in hotels. And then, um, uh, I have a lodging in, in Montana that, you know, I'm sort of using as a base camp, uh, okay. as we make the trips around. So, so have you done one of these big, long, road trips before hunting road trips or is this your first one well <clears throat> i've done a lot of road trips obviously living in florida i've got to get out, i've got to get on a road trip to get on birds but mm-hmm. um not one as as sort of uh, intentional as this um usually we'd you know we would just gut it out and make a two-day drive and try to get to nebraska or south dakota or north dakota somewhere and and start hunting and i and, and then you know we'd make a beeline for the next area we'd pick two or three spots uh, every fall and, and we'd spend, you know, a few days in each of those. And this year I wanted to do it a little bit differently. I, I didn't, even though I sent you what looked like a set agenda, I mean, I knew when I started that it was going to be subject to change and, sure, um, sure. we weren't going to hurry from one place to the other place. You know, I've always been enamored with the, with the saying, don't leave birds to find birds. And, and, you know, on past trips I found because we had accommodations, you know, made in advance and we had to be at a certain city by a certain date to get our hotel reservations. You know, I felt like we weren't given some spots, you know, a fair opportunity. And so this time I did it differently. I didn't have one, one lodging reservation made ahead of time. I just went wherever the birds took me. And, uh, I, it's been, it's been a lot more enjoyable and probably a lot more productive from that standpoint. What advice could you give somebody who's planning a trip like this. I've received a handful of emails in the last week to 10 days of people that are like, I've got some time off. I would like to go on a trip. What do you think I should do? Where should I go? And of course, I'm not going to give them, you know, Onyx pins, but I just recommend, you know, what I think would be best. What What do you give, 
listeners right now as a recommendation for, you know, or maybe it's a lesson learned type thing for going on a long bird hunting road trip like this? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the bird numbers are up this year. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a, you pick them, um, when you get, you know, to North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, or uh, Montana area. Um, I think the biggest thing that the advice that I would give people is advice that I gave to myself when I started, which is if you have the ability and, and I understand that a lot of people don't, a lot of people are taking a week's vacation to make this happen or, you know, or two weeks vacation to make it happen. If you have the ability, um, to just go and sort of, uh, enjoy the ride and end up where the birds take you and, and take the opportunity to don't make it all about the field. Don't even make it all about the dogs as much as I love my dogs, but give your, you know, put some time in there that you can stop and do some of the kinds of things that I talked about, which is have a, you know, have an hour long conversation, uh, with somebody that, you know, some other hunter that you meet somewhere. Don't, don't just nod as you're walking in and out of the door, but, you know, try to engage some people in a conversation. We ended up in a campground in, uh, Northwest North Dakota because the town, or I'm sorry, in, uh, Northeast Montana, because the town that we were in didn't have accommodations. We ended up at a campground and a couple of uh, campsites down from us were three guys from Washington state. And, um, you know, they saw, ironically, they saw me uh, airing out my Picardy Spaniels that came over to ask what kind of dog that was. We struck up a conversation and I ended up, you know, walking over to their campsite later on in the night. And we had, you know, we had a great conversation and one of them showed me a photo of his dog. And I said, man, that's a great photo. It's his first, uh, uh, a young dog, a young Labrador retriever, his first pheasant. I said, you need to send that to me. And I'm, we're going to submit that for bird dog of the day. And, and sure enough, he got up, he was bird dog of the day a couple of weeks ago, his dog uh, named Bailey. And I would have never had that experience if I was just, you know, on this sort of, uh, death march to just get in the field and hunt birds. And again, I, I, I'm taking a little more time, uh, this year because I have the opportunity. I know if you got a week's vacation, you can't, necessarily do that but i would just encourage people enjoy the full experience not just the you know the in the field experience give yourself an opportunity to experience it all if people the last question here and then we'll, we'll wrap this up if people want more information about the picardies spaniels that you've talked about in the litter that's coming up uh how do they go but maybe they're already spoken for i don't know but like how would somebody connect with you or with the breeder well, the the best thing to do is to go to the website for the U.S. Uh, Picardy Spaniel Alliance, and that's really easy, picardy.org, P-I-C-A-R-D-Y.org. Uh, on that website, there's going to be a bunch of information about the breed. There's going to be a list of breeders. Uh, there's going to be um, a list of litters that are planned uh, or that are already on the ground. Um, you can contact any of those uh, breeders directly if you want information about that. And if you want to get in touch with me, uh, I'm happy, as you uh, got a little preview of this morning, I'm happy to talk about Picardy Spaniels till the cows come home. So if you, want, <laughs> yeah. if you want to reach me, you can email me at mike at birddogoftheday.com, spelled just like it sounds, mike at birddogoftheday.com. And I'd be happy to talk to you about anything you want to talk about, hunting, Picardy Spaniels, uh, bird dog of the day, whatever it is that you want, I'm I'm happy. That's uh, that's the community that I want to connect with. So reach out to me if you'd like to. Oh my gosh. I'm on Picardy.org right now. The photo at the very 
top of it, two little pickerty puppies. Holy crap. If you don't fall in love with that, we can't be friends. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned your wife. You mentioned your wife earlier. Don't show that picture to her unless you I, want I, to. You better not. No, yeah. I'm going to be. My, yeah. wife is not a, my wife is not a hunter, but my second, uh, my second dog, Theo, I thought I was one and done with Tilly. And my wife followed uh, our breeder on his website. And about 18 months after I brought Tilly over from England, um, she kept talking about this little uh, puppy on the breeder's website. And I finally said to her, I said, Lori, do you want that dog? And she said real sheepishly, yeah, I, I kind of think I do. And uh, so I didn't give her a second chance. I had to deposit on that dog the next day. <laughs> And he came over, but yeah, they're, they're, uh, if you, they're beautiful as adults, but they're almost irresistible as puppies, but go to pickety.org and check it out. Yeah. You won't be disappointed. You'll see these two little puppies looking up with their blue eyes at the camera and oh my goodness, you can't say no to that face. I, I just, I got to hang up this right now. I got to go over. I'll I'll be, I'll meet you at the breeder. I'm going to put my (laughs) deposit in right now. There you oh, go. Um, and then I'll give one last shout out to Bird Dog of the Day. You guys have some pretty cool new uh, swag items. You got some coffee tumblers, some cups, and and it's cool because you've got the different birds on the mugs, and you also have different dog breeds on there too. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners have seen these, but if you haven't, head to Bird Dog of the Day and check them out. And I'm thinking that if you have a, a hunter in your life that you're looking for some Christmas ideas for that they would really love a set, a glass set, whether it's whiskey glass or, uh, you know, wine cups or whatever it might be. Uh, I think you'll enjoy what you see there. And with that, we will wrap up this episode of the flush podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode, maybe live from the field. Maybe we'll be in South Dakota. Maybe we'll be in snow. Maybe we'll be in cattails. Maybe it'll be warm, sunny, and the blue stem will be waving ever so softly as the roosters sail out of sight when you just pulled the trigger twice and missed both times. Oh, it hurts, but it's worth going back to see again and again and again. We'll see you next week.